Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On this episode, we're going to talk a little bit to men who identify uh, as abusive. Uh, We're doing this because we're in the process of restructuring our Men of Peace program. Men of Peace is our online group uh, for men who desire change. Uh, They identify as abusive and they want to change through the power of the gospel. Uh, So that that topic, those issues are kind of fresh in my mind as I'm reworking some of the curriculum and preparing to, to redo some videos and Uh, some workbooks. And so we just thought it would be helpful for the next few episodes to talk with you a little bit uh, about men of peace, but more specifically to address men with a few uh, areas of concern. Uh, Last episode, we talked about sin. And uh, while that's a continual theme, uh, we want to talk today uh, in part one of a series on some changes that need to be made. And we're going to begin by just talking about this idea of no longer harming uh, your partner, no longer hurting the person that you love. Now, many men that come into uh, accountability groups, whether it be men of peace or a battery intervention program, will often enter the program with what we call a victim stance. Uh, they do not believe that they're at fault. Uh, they when being held accountable, for instance, for uh, irresponsible and harmful behavior, um, this person using the victim stance will blame others and they will portray themselves as actually the victim. They view themselves as poorly treated or they ignore personal action and behavior in favor of focusing on the other. So for a criminal corrections group, for instance, on the criminal side, Um, The blame will often be cast towards one's partner, law enforcement, judges, one's attorney not being good enough, um, and then obviously to the facilitators who are, you know, part of the system, the the systemic approach to, you know, victimizing them. But uh, within, you know, um, other settings, this happens, you know, victims of my my wife, for instance, probably the most... um, um, common finger pointing is towards one's spouse. And one of the reasons why this is difficult within the church community to identify is that if it was in isolation, if it was simply a a clear perpetrator who had, you know, violated and harmed and abused their partner in plain sight, then these types of minimizations, denials, and blames would be readily visible. But that's not usually the case in church. And so what ends up happening a great deal is when abuse is disclosed and the victim stance is taken. So an individual, a perpetrator, if you were, takes the victim stance and begins to blame the actual victim that she's the abusive one. I'm simply reacting or I'm, um, you know, poorly responding. And that's actually a pretty common excuse. And so what happens is, and maybe you, if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you can reflect back. Maybe you've recently uh, been accused or approached about your use 
of power and control, and your knee-jerk response has been to give passive language, such as owning some things, such as I've been less than loving, or I haven't been as gentle as I could, or I know I could be a better husband. Uh, And in doing so, beginning to shift the blame to I, I haven't been as active as I should because my wife is cold or I haven't treated her very poorly because she's, she's very angry. And we start shifting, right, shifting the blame so that um, the one causing the harm is becoming the victim. Again, this is not easily identifiable uh, in the church in large part because victims historically will actually own uh, a level of responsibility. And so this is one of those upside-down aspects of abuse work where perpetrators will take a victim stance and victims will often take responsibility. So when abuse is disclosed in a church setting, it's not uncommon for the perpetrator to own small aspects um, or passive responses or certain responses to their spouse, all the while subtly shifting the blame. And it's not uncommon for a victim to own that to say, yes, I I am sinful, I have done these things. And what is disclosed as abuse quickly becomes mutualized. So if you're, for instance, if you have been accused of abuse and uh, the temptation for you is to quickly go on the defensive, and this is something that I would really caution you on, Rather than going on the defensive, rather than speaking, let me encourage you to self-reflect for a moment. Am I participating in the behaviors being listed? Am I doing harm to my partner? Uh, Is the impact uh, visible to me? Am I seeing the effects of my harm? If you find yourself falling into a victim stance, being defensive, then more than likely you're going to remain blind to any culpability. And you're going to invite your partner to ownership that does not belong to her. This goes down a path of rationalization and justification that's very common among men who do in fact abuse their partners. And it's something that uh, can be hidden in plain sight, again, as we focus on mutuality uh, as opposed to responsibility. Now, I bring that up because one of the key ways in which um, victims of domestic violence and domestic abuse are shaped and formed, one of the the key ways in which uh, the struggle is most adamant is in the area of what we call crazy-making or psychological abuse. Now, I bring this up in the context of taking a victim stance because um, abuse in and of itself is unsettling. Can we agree on that? If you're using your power to control your partner, then that is unsettling. It's unpredictable and it's confusing that this person who is supposed to love me is actually using their power to control me leads one to think desperate thoughts, to be confused, to be unsettled. We call this crazy-making because victims often come away uh, from an abusive situation unsettled and uncertain, not knowing how to respond because 
they're, they're left, again, confused. The victim stance that perpetrators tend to take, the defensiveness, the blame shifting, the uh, colluding of saying, I'm the one being harmed, adds to the confusion and crazy making of the situation where a victim begins to doubt their own thoughts, their own words. And now I want you to pause for just a minute. I want you to think, uh, if you're a, a victim of domestic abuse, this may add tons of clarity, but if you're perpetrating acts of abuse, if you're one of these men to which the church should be calling to repentance, I really want you to pause for a minute and self-reflect. Are you causing mental and emotional stress to your partner by creating a climate of uncertainty and confusion? Let's go one step further. If you are creating a climate in your home of uncertainty and confusion, do you enjoy it? Are you taking pleasure in your partner's um, confusion? If, if the answer is yes to either of those questions, that you are in fact creating a climate of confusion and uh, uncertainty, uh, and then on top of that you enjoy it, if the answer is yes to either of those, then this is a major problem that should require an immediate immediate um, desire for help. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that if you're, if you're listening to this and you fall into the category of, yes, I play the role of the victim, I manipulate my partner, I cause confusion, I cause uncertainty, then this podcast should be a giant stop sign that says this behavior is not only um, inappropriate, unhealthy, it's sinful. It's undermining and deliberately um, manipulating and controlling a person that you should be serving and protecting. Putting them in a a situation and a scenario where uh, they're stressed, anxious, worried, uh, not because of some outside threat or some outside force, but because of your specific action. As um, you know, our parents may have said, you should be ashamed, and you should. And that's why it's important, uh, in part, for you to seek out help. Because relationships are not designed to be places of uncertainty and, and mystery in that regard. They're designed to be safe. And if you're perpetually in the victim stance, knowing that you've harmed your partner, but seeking instead to deflect responsibility upon them, keeping them unsettled, um, then you are in need of repentance. And your partner is in need of safety. And that may require outside help. This idea of minimizing the effects of our choices helps assuage our conscience, but the scripture tells us that that leads to hard-heartedness. If you've come to a place where your heart is so hard that you willfully harm your spouse, you willfully harm your wife with little or no guilt or recourse, um, then that's not only sinful, 
Um, but it is desperately wicked, and you're in need of repentance. Why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up in large part because many of the men that I work with see the physical and even some of the emotional aspects of their power and control. Uh, but overall, the, the biggest red flag, the area that's the most glaring in uh, counseling and group work is the area of minimization. My abuse is not that big of a deal. Denial, it never happened, or blame. It's someone or something else's fault. Those are the biggest, most glaring aspects of abuse uh, when an abusive person is confronted. Those very acts, minimizing, denying, and blaming, create a culture and a climate in your family uh, that leads to what we call crazy-making. A lack of ownership, a lack of awareness, a lack of acknowledgement leaves the victim uh, in a state of desperation. Probably the greatest thing you can do to serve your partner if you've been abusive is to begin the hard process of acknowledging that you were wrong. I stutter through that because that's how difficult it can be for some folks. Until you're willing to acknowledge the extent and the impact, the extent and the effects, you should not expect right, to overcome or experience change. Many men come into processes like a batter intervention group with a desire for reconciliation a good desire, but an inferior one. You see, that intention um, is often motivated by getting things back to normal, getting things back to the way they were. But our destructive behavior, the individual's destructive or abusive behavior, has been so significant that restoration is not even possible without acknowledgement, repentance, and change. And acknowledging even to the extent of the ways in which you've minimized the abuse, made light of it, you've denied your participation in it, and you're blaming of something or someone, that aspect is essential to seeing change happen. Without acknowledging uh, those areas, um, you will not experience change because you haven't owned the ways in which you've abused your partner. So when you're thinking of the effects of abuse, and we often talk about the behavior, the motivations, and then the impact. When you're thinking about the impact or the effects of abuse, you have to take responsibility for those as well. So sometimes we'll hear guys say in regards to their victim that she's crazy, that she's unpredictable, that she's always angry. And that may be true to an extent. That may be the perception. But the question to ask yourself is, how did she get there? In what ways has my abuse contributed to the uncertainty and the confusion in her day-to-day -day life? Does she know? Is she, is she fearful to emote because of my ridicule, threats, and coercion? Is she uncertain what choices to make and paralyzed um, in her day-to-day -day life because of my ridicule and my constant criticism. Without that self-reflection in place, 
we shouldn't expect change. And without an acknowledgement that, um, yes, my wife is responsible for her behavior, but I'm contributing through my coercion, without that acknowledgement that my coercion and threats are contributing to her health and safety, without those considerations, we should not expect change to happen. I bring this up because, uh, again, so many of the people that we've worked with have remained vague. Um, vagueness is avoiding the concrete answers to questions. Vagueness is used to avoid uh, the truth. And so many of the men that we've worked with over the years have tried to maintain a level of vagueness to avoid responsibility. And I want to say to you, if, if you are defensive and you are vague and you are unwilling to acknowledge the extent to which you've harmed others, you should not expect transformation. It is impossible to change in vagueness. And by remaining vague, you're indicating that you don't even have a willingness to change because we only change in specificity. So one of the little tools that we use, one of the little exercises that we've done over the years is uh, an exercise that we call least hurtful and most hurtful. You maybe have heard me describe this before, but we, we put a scale, a Likert scale. It's a straight line on the whiteboard, you know, kind of a numbered one to 10, one being the least severe and 10 being the most severe. And we say least hurtful and most hurtful. So one is the least hurtful and 10 is the most hurtful. And then we begin to describe or highlight tactics of abuse. And then we ask the guys to rate them as least hurtful or most hurtful. It's quite an exciting exercise as guys will defend their position on why hitting might be more hurtful than name calling or why one guy may say that name calling is more harmful than hitting or um, isolation, taking car keys might be more harmful than taking one's cell phone or vice versa. And by the end of the debate, usually around an hour of discussion, we have a whiteboard full of categorized, organized, and uh, systematized behaviors. Moving from left to right, the least hurtful to the most hurtful. Now, this exercise is really a trick. It's meant to highlight the ways in which we minimize our own impact. Because one thing that we usually do not recognize is that all the behaviors are hurtful. Whether we put them as least or most is inconsequential to the question, why are we free to practice this against our partner? Why are we willing to go do this and not this? When none of these behaviors are acceptable. So my challenge, my challenge to you if you're listening to this podcast today, if you're thinking about how you've been treating your wife, for instance. And you come to the place and you say, you know what, Chris, I think you're right. I think I've taken a victim stance. And when someone confronted me on my behavior, I've been defensive rather than reflective. Or you know what, Chris, I think you're right. When it comes to acknowledging my abuse, I've been vague, not specific. I want to challenge you just to take some time not to categorize your behavior 
as less hurtful or more hurtful than your spouses or more hurtful or less hurtful than your neighbors, but to begin to list out the ways in which you've harmed your partner. And then asking yourself the question, how did this affect her? How did this impact her? Take that list to um, a pastor, a trusted friend, and begin to dialogue with them about the severity. Not that it was more hurtful or least hurtful, but that your heart allowed you to go there and begin to brainstorm about what it looks like to have the heart of Christ uh, instead of a heart that produces this kind of behavior. Well, I know that was uh, just a rapid run-through of some thoughts. I hope that's a helpful paradigm just to begin thinking through um, this victim stance and crazy-making and vagueness and how what we need as men of peace is concrete um, responses, concrete ownership of the ways in which we sin against others. Um, rather than blaming, minimizing, or denying, really owning and repenting of our actions. I want to thank you guys for listening to today's podcast. I appreciate you all so much. Uh, again, keep your eyes open for the new Men of Peace, the new restructured Men of Peace. And as always, uh, until we see you again, God bless.